thank you for being here and worship with us today. And if you're in our overflow room or if you are watching us online, we want to welcome you as well. This morning, as you can see, we are continuing the series that we have been in called A Different Gospel. And so if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we introduced this topic by talking about this major shift that has happened in many churches and in many denominations across our nation. And we talked about this movement away from traditional historic Christian beliefs as having been labeled progressive Christianity. And this was the definition that I gave a couple of weeks ago for progressive Christianity. It is a movement with historical Christian roots, yet differs in its view of the Bible, Christian doctrines, moral and social issues. And so this morning, we are going to focus on the first difference mentioned in that definition. You can see it highlighted here, the Bible. For any belief, for any moral stance, for any philosophy of life, there has to be a starting point. There must be a foundation. If I say to you, this is moral or this is immoral, or if I say to you, this is right, or this is wrong, I have to have some basis for making my judgment about that particular action. For historic Christians, that basis, that foundation has been the Bible. A great summation of what historic Christians believe about the Bible is found in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. Uh, you can see that verse at the top of your message map there with some blanks to fill in. Before we fill in those blanks, you need to understand that 2 Timothy was written by Paul who wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. 2 Timothy was the last of his letters he was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was awaiting trial before Nero. He would soon be executed for his faith in Christ. Nero would pronounce him guilty and he would be executed. Uh, he at this point knew that his days were numbered. He was in very poor health. And so he wrote this letter to Timothy who was a pastor who was like Paul's son in the faith to communicate these important truths. And he knows the end is near and he wants him to understand the truths that he needs to know both as a pastor and as a follower of Christ. One of those key truths is found in chapter three, verses 16 and 17. This is what Paul wrote. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's why we are starting with this passage today. Christians have traditionally said that all truth, all truth, specifically truth related to what is morally right and morally wrong, that it is determined by God. That God is that objective standard. He is the foundation by which we can know what is right and what is wrong. 
In other words, truth is determined by the character of God and his character is revealed to us in his word or what we call God-breathed scriptures. So to know right from wrong, we go to the character of God which we find in the Bible. This is a radically different view from those who do not believe in God and those who have a naturalistic worldview. For those who subscribe to that view, it is very difficult to pinpoint anything in life as morally right or morally wrong. In fact, you can say, I don't like that action. That act hurt me. Those words upset me. But you cannot call it objectively wrong unless there is a foundation for that morality. Israeli historian and author Yuval Noah Harari, who is an atheist, wrote in a book entitled Sapiens these words. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. Harari freely admits here that when there is no objective standard, justice can only be determined by the common imagination of human beings. That it is the collective imagination of our culture that determines what is right and what is wrong. For example, is slavery wrong? We would say yes, because our culture has determined through our collective opinion, our collective imagination, that slavery is wrong. But 200 years ago, our collective imagination said it was right. And so 200 years ago, it was morally right. Today, uh, it is morally wrong. But 200 years from now, that could change again. According to Harari, right and wrong is determined by whatever the culture says is right and wrong. And so this changes from culture to culture and then within a culture over time. Which is exactly what the renowned atheist Richard Dawkins says in his book, Outgrowing God, when he wrote the following. Moral values are in the air and they change from century to century or from decade to decade. So again, how would he say that moral values are determined? Well, since they are in the air... They are determined by whichever way the cultural wind is blowing. Again, according to this truth, there is no objective truth by which we measure right and wrong. Moral values are measured by the subjective preferences of the culture, which Dawkins correctly notes here, changes from century to century, even decade to decade. What was considered very much immoral three decades ago in this nation is considered very much moral by many people in our culture today. That view 
that right and wrong is very subjective, is this moving target, that is a very common view in our world. However, historic Christians have said over the years, no, we reject that morality is subjective and is always changing. We believe there is an objective truth that is found in God's word, and that is how we determine what is morally right and morally wrong. And so Christians would say, is stealing wrong? Yes, because God's word says that it is wrong regardless of what the culture says. Even if the collective imagination, the collective opinion of the culture on this matter changes, Christians have said, no, it is wrong because God's word tells us that it is wrong. Is adultery wrong? Yes, even if the culture says that adultery is right, it is still wrong because there is objective truth found in God's word that says it is morally wrong. The Bible has served as our foundation or our basis for deciding how to make moral judgments over the years. However, progressive Christian churches and denominations have moved away from this belief. For these individuals, the Bible no longer represents objective truth. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you this quote from a progressive Christian website on how they interpret the Bible. And this is how it read. We don't think that God wrote the Bible. We think it was written by fallible human beings who were inspired by, but not dictated to by, the Holy Spirit. Hence, we don't consider it to be infallible or inerrant. This is a common view of progressive Christians. I listened to a podcast recently featuring a progressive Christian pastor named Brandon Robertson. Uh, He is a very young pastor of a church in San Diego. The podcast mainly focused on sexuality and whether or not homosexuality is part of God's design. However, the host of the podcast began with this very key question. The host asked this progressive pastor, what is the basis or what is the foundation of your truth? And the host clarified and said, look, I know that you agree that some actions are moral and some are immoral. You disagree with those who say there really is no such thing as objective moral truth. Since you believe that there is morality and immorality, then how do you determine that? What is your objective moral standard? This was the answer that Robertson, this progressive pastor, gave when the host asked him for that standard. I would say that perhaps there is an objective moral standard, but I don't believe we can know it objectively. Let that one sink in. And I don't believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And therefore, I also don't think that all of the morality we find in the pages of the Bible is worthy of being followed. And so the host then repeated the question, okay, since you reject the Bible as your standard for objective truth, what standard do you use? And this is his response. He said, we have reason, we have science, 
We have revelation. I do believe in revelation. I just don't believe that all of the Bible is God's revelation. This represents the core of the debate between historical Christians and progressive Christians. Here's the question, is the Bible our foundation for how we determine what is morally right and morally wrong, or is it not? Now, I've mentioned to you a couple of times that the reason I decided to do this series was because of the many questions I received about what is currently happening in the United Methodist Church. For the last number of years in that denomination, there has been this growing division around the issue of same-sex marriage and specifically, uh, how do you define what is moral and immoral when it comes to sexual choices? The foundation under this argument is the question, how do we view the Bible? Do we view it as God's word? Is it the primary way that we know objective truth? Or is it just nice and helpful? Is it just a reference guide that can be dismissed if you don't agree with it? And if you don't like certain parts, you just reject those parts of the Bible. Here's another way to think of it. There are three uh, foundations that churches, that denominations, that Christians have used for understanding truth. Historically, Christians have said that scripture is that foundation. That tradition guides us, that reason guides us. God gave us minds to think. And so those are guides, but scripture is our foundation. Another way to view it is tradition as the foundation and scripture guides us and reason guides us. Now, this was the core of the debate during the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and the other reformers said the Catholic Church is now using tradition as their foundation and we believe that scripture should be our foundation. And so Martin Luther protested that stance of the Catholic Church and thus Protestants were born. Progressive Christians have said reason is our foundation. Scripture is helpful. Traditions are helpful. In many churches they will use many Christian traditions and rituals. They will use uh, Christian hymns, traditional hymns, but they would say at the end of the day Reason is our foundation. And so sexual choices, if scripture says it's wrong and tradition says it's wrong, but my reason says I think this should be morally acceptable, then reason wins out. Now here's the problem with that viewpoint. Reason certainly can inform us, but reason is not objective truth. Reason is my opinion versus your opinion. What may be reasonable to me may not be reasonable at all to you. And there is no objective way to appeal to something outside of us. It's just your reason versus my reason. Tradition at the end of the day is exactly the same way. A tradition is just reason with history attached to it. A tradition 
can change over time. Martin Luther made a famous statement in his trial before the Catholic Church where he argued that Scripture should be our foundation. And he said, arguing against tradition, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted one another. So this pope used his reason and said, this is true. Another pope said, this is true. They contradicted each other. This council said, this is true. This other council said, something else is true. They contradicted each other. So reason is ever-changing. Tradition is ever-changing. That leaves us one other source. Scripture. The Bible. And Christians have traditionally believed that this serves as our foundation as our objective truth. There's this verse stated earlier that it is God-breathed, and that's how we can know what is right and what is wrong. If you'll notice on your message map, there are five uh, ways that we can know that the Bible is God-breathed. Let me say before we get into these, one, Uh, Some of this is a little bit academic, and so let me just say that on the front end. Forgive me for that. Um, Secondly, this is a high-level view. Volumes have been written on this topic. We will not be able to cover it all this morning. But this is a high-level view of reasons that you can know that the Bible is trustworthy as the Word of God. Number one, the Bible is trustworthy because the Bible is incredibly consistent. You can write that word in, consistent. The Bible is incredibly consistent. This is another quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. He wrote this about the Bible. The Bible is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and quote, improved, by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and unknown to each other spanning nine centuries. Nine centuries isn't exactly right. It's really about 20 centuries. The book of Job was written almost 2,000 years before Jesus came. Uh, And then all the New Testament documents were written at least before 100 AD. And so Dawkins is correct here. The Bible was written over a long period of time by either 38 or 39 different authors who lived in completely different cultures, written in three different languages, Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek, and then parts of the Old Testament in Aramaic. One would expect, knowing all of that, that what Dawkins here says would be exactly right. Any document written over 2,000 years by people who were from vastly different cultures, did not speak the same language, you would expect that book to be chaotic and disjointed, just as Dawkins said. Yet, when you sit down and you read the Bible with an open and honest mind, you'll find that the people writing thousands of years apart had complete agreement, especially on the big ideas. Let's look at just a few. How did all these different authors speaking different languages, writing in different languages, living in different cultures, how did they view the creation of the world? 
You would expect different authors from different time periods that one might say there was God, another might say there were many gods, another might say evolution, and let me talk about the Big Bang Theory. Yet when you sit down and read scripture, they have complete agreement on the creation of the world. Genesis 1, written by Moses 1,400 years before Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then you turn over to Jesus. He says at the beginning, God made them male and female. Both of them agree. Even though different time uh, periods, they both agree. It was God. John, writing later, says, by God, all things were made. Now, again, you would think that it would be disjointed, that they would have completely different views. But when it comes to the issue of the creation of the world, there is complete agreement. Let's look at another topic. Noah and the flood. Again, different authors over different time periods. You would expect that someone would say, well, it was literal. Someone else would say, no, it was just a myth. Here's what we read. Moses, Genesis 7, Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Then Jesus, 1,400 years later, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And then Peter, writing sometime later, said those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Again, you would think different authors over different time periods that it would be chaotic and disjointed. But on the issue of Noah and the flood, there is complete agreement. Here's another topic, another big one, the resurrection of Jesus. Again, different authors over different time periods. You would expect one might say, yeah, he was literally resurrected. Someone else would say it was just made up. It was a myth. Someone else would say he didn't really die on the cross. He was almost dead, but not quite dead and just looked like he was raised from the dead. Yet when it comes to this issue, there is complete agreement. King David, writing a thousand years before Christ, predicting the resurrection, said this, Lord, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pointed forward to when God would send his son who would not see decay. Then you see Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the disciples all laughed. Ha <laughs> Jesus, the temple took decades and decades to build the temple. How can you just destroy it and then build it back in three days? What kind of general contractor are you, Jesus? And Jesus, no, I'm referring to my body being raised in three days. And then Paul agrees with that. Jesus was buried and he was raised again on the third day. Again, people may claim that the Bible is incredibly disjointed, except when you sit down and read it, there is complete agreement on all of these things. We could go down the list, the faith of Abraham, the virgin birth of Jesus, the importance of prayer, being kind to others, all of these things. There is complete agreement. Now, I know that some people can point out passages and verses that on the surface seem to contradict one another. 
And they'll come to you and they'll say, look at this first and look at this first. And they seem to be contradictions. Let me say a couple of things about those contradictions. First of all, most of the time, those contradictions can be solved with just a little bit of research. Many times they are just different perspectives on the same event. If you saw a car wreck and I saw the same car wreck and we were standing on different sides of the street and the police officer interviewed you and they interviewed me, they might get two dissimilar stories, not because we witnessed a different event, but because we had different perspectives on that event. Many times in scripture, you're reading different perspectives on the same event. The second thing to keep in mind with these so-called contradictions is that they never have different beliefs about any of the major doctrines of the Bible. On the major themes, on the major doctrines, there is complete agreement. One of the ways that you can know that the Bible is God-breathed is because of the uh, incredible consistency. Here's the second thing, you can write this in. How can I know the Bible is God-breathed? Because the Bible has numerous fulfilled prophecies. And this is seen mainly and especially in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, there are almost 300 prophecies that were fulfilled. You'll be glad to know we will not go through all 300 this morning. However, there's one I want to point out to you. Under that, where you fill that in, right in Psalm 22. And I want you to go back later and study this passage. Psalm 22 was written by David a thousand years before Christ came. And here's what's important. It was also written by David 500 years before crucifixion was invented. The Persians invented death by crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. The Romans used it as the death penalty quite often. David, when he wrote these words, would have been wholly unfamiliar with death by crucifixion. And yet, using metaphorical language to describe his own sense of agony and the trial that he was going through, David described it this way. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. A thousand years before Jesus came, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified on the cross, probably the best description of what happened that day was written by King David. And that's just one. That's just one prophecy of many that were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I know that you might say, well, those are just coincidences. Now, this was just a coincidence that David used this language to describe his situation and that Jesus went through a very similar situation. When you get to 300 predictions, that is a lot of coincidences. And in my opinion, if you want to believe they are all just coincidences, that takes a whole lot of faith. I just don't know if I have enough faith to believe that you can have that many coincidences all happening at once fulfilled in Jesus. Number three, write this in. 
The Bible has reliable manuscripts. One of the arguments that you will hear from progressive Christians is that the Bible cannot be trusted because we do not have the original manuscripts, which is true. We do not. We have copies of copies of copies. And so some have said, since we do not have the originals, how can we know that these were actually written by the authors whose names are behind these various books? How can we know that Matthew really wrote Matthew? How can we know that Paul actually wrote Philippians and someone else didn't write Philippians and just attach Paul's name to it? Now, this is a little on the academic side, I, I warned you, and this will get slightly technical, but this will help you understand just how reliable from a historic perspective, from a scholarly, scholarly perspective, uh, the Bible is. And we're going to concentrate on the New Testament. If you've ever read any history books about the beginning of the Roman Empire, most of those facts are based on the writings of Julius Caesar, and they have been collected in a book called The Gaelic War. Right now, you can go on Amazon.com, and you can purchase The Gaelic War, title of the book, and the author is Julius Caesar. How was that put together? Well, let's look at that particular book. The Gaelic War, the author is Caesar. Caesar wrote it sometime between 144 BC. We do not have the original. It is lost to history. What we have are copies. The earliest copy dates to 900 AD, a thousand years after the original was written. The elapsed time, a thousand years. How many manuscripts, how many copies do you think we have? Ten. Ten copies that all claim to be copies of the original that Caesar wrote. Now, this is just one example. There are a lot of other ancient documents that are trusted as accurate, historic documents considered by scholars to be very reliable, and they have even less copies than this. So how does this compare to the New Testament? Let's look at the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, and Paul, and one unknown author, the writer of Hebrews, as the authors of the book. When was the New Testament written? Sometime between 48 AD would have been the earliest, and then depending on when you date certain letters, between 65 and 90 AD. What are the earliest copies of these that we have? Remember, a thousand years for the Gaelic Wars. We have fragments going to 114 AD, books to 200 AD, the majority of the New Testament to 50 AD, and the complete New Testament, 325 AD. So the elapsed time is 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, 225 years. Now here's the key. How many manuscripts do we have? Over 5,000. Why? Because the early church exploded in growth. All these churches were planted in various cities throughout the Roman Empire, and they would take the letters of Paul or the Gospels or what John wrote in his letters or Peter, and they would copy and copy and copy. So these other churches would all have copies. And today we have over 5,000 manuscripts. Here's what this means, simply put. If it wasn't the Bible 
Every scholar would agree that what we have is incredibly reliable as a document because there are so many copies that are in agreement with one another, far more than any other ancient book. I won't go into the, note, into the Old Testament. If you're interested in the Old Testament and how we can know it's reliable, Google the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 in Israel, and you can discover why the Old Testament is historically absolutely reliable. So one of the ways that we can know that it is reliable as a document is because we have so many manuscripts. Number four. We can know that it is God-breathed because the Bible does not hide its mess. I promise you, if you were inventing a religion, you would not include all the warts and the sins and the mistakes of the heroes like we see in the Bible. The Bible does not gloss over the sins and all the mistakes that were made. It doesn't try to tie up the loose ends. The main characters, the heroes of the faith are painted in not so great a light. Just a few examples. Noah was a drunk. Abraham let other men walk off with his wife on two different occasions. We just studied that in our last series. Abraham's wife, Sarah, let her husband sleep with another woman and then hated that woman for it. Abraham's the patriarch of our faith. Sarah was his wife, yet lots of sin there. Jacob was a pathological liar. Moses had a serious problem with his temper and committed murder. David committed adultery and murder and lied about both of those. Jeremiah struggled with depression and, of thoughts, and, and thoughts of suicide. And that's just the Old Testament. Turn over to the New Testament. And you see the founders of our faith in Christ with all of their warts and all of their mistakes. Peter was a coward. Paul was a murderer. Mark abandoned Paul on a missionary journey. There were fights and there were disagreements and there were lies. There were all sorts of problems. I love this one quote that I read on this. It says, I'm convinced that if somebody simply rewrote the books of the Bible in modern language and published it under a different name, most Christian bookstores would refuse to carry it because of all the violence and sex and sometimes swearing. Game of Thrones would be tame in comparison. If I were going to sit down and write a book to start a religion, I would do a much better job of making the heroes look like heroes. I, I, I would do a better job of making them look far more righteous. I would not air all of their dirty laundry. And yet that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible did not drop down to us from heaven. It was written in the context of a community of faith who affirmed its accuracy, the events that we read about, the good and the bad and the ugly. No other religious book does this. Every other religious book paints its founder, the heroes of the faith, in an absolutely positive light. Because we see the Bible does not hide its mess, we can know that it is trustworthy as a God-breathed document. Finally, here's the last thing you can fill in. 
The Bible is trustworthy because it has completely changed the world. Even the most hardened atheist would agree that no book has impacted the world like the Bible. There is no way to overstate the significance that the Bible has had in shaping world history. No other religious book, no other book at all, has sold as many copies as the Bible, has changed as many lives, has changed as many nations, and has changed the history of the world. The great French writer Victor Hugo once said, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. And we could say as well, the Bible made our country and Canada and Australia and a number of other nations around the world. You can say, I do not believe it is the word of God, but you cannot look at the facts and deny its impact on our world and so many lives that it has changed. At the beginning of this series, I told you that I expected to receive a lot of negative emails about doing this particular series. I want you to know that right the opposite has happened. Um, it is such an incredible privilege and honor to pastor a church of people who have said, regardless of what culture says, regardless of how culture changes around us, we want to stand on the foundation of the word of God. We very much recognize that we are not a perfect people, but we serve a God who is. And we do not always live up to the standard of scripture, but that does not mean that we do away with the standard. And that we want to base our faith and our morality on truth as revealed by God in his word. Thank you for letting me serve you and for your foundational belief in the Bible as this God-breathed document. God has always been faithful to us. God has always, always been faithful to us. Let us strive to be faithful to him as well.